You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Thank you, Miss Ashton, for reading this morning the beginning of her story. And I say the beginning because uh, we are going to cover the entire chapter this morning, this wonderful, beautiful story in Genesis chapter 24. I give you that on the front end. We encourage you every week to follow along in your Bibles along with us. We want you to see uh, what we are talking about come from God's Word and not just from our lips. And even more so this morning because this is the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. It's longer than Abraham being called out from his father's land. It's longer than uh, the giving of the sign of circumcision as the sign of the covenant. It's longer even than the birth of Isaac, the one we had waited on so long in our story. In fact, this narrative is longer even than the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And I give you that for a couple reasons. One, it is not unimportant when an author takes this much time when he has been so concise in other areas of Abraham's life. It means we are to pay attention. It means God is doing something really beautiful here in this text. And part of the reason that we are dealing with something so beautiful in this text is because the story of what's going to happen between the marriage of Rebecca and Isaac isn't finalized, isn't finished only here in the book of Genesis. But its ultimate conclusion is really pointing us forward to our relationship, our marriage to Christ as his church, his bride. But with all of that, we are going to cover all 67 verses this morning. So it would be good for you again to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you want to, if you don't have one or you want to follow along in in print there in the Bibles in front of you, you can turn to page 17. As we start this morning, too often it seems that we can spend our time and our mental energy really captivated, stressing about whether or not we have made all the right decisions, whether or not we are where we are supposed to be. We wonder if we've missed out on something from the Lord. And now we're kind of off the path and it's up to us to somehow get back on the path so that we can find the blessings of God again. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we can miss out based on, our own, based on our own sin, based on our own rebellion, based on our trying to do it our own way. We can miss out on some temporal blessings of the Lord for sure. But if you are in Christ, you can never do too much wrong to somehow have missed out on the fact that God is your God and you are his child. And so if you are seeking after him and his kingdom first and foremost, then we can walk with confidence in faith that God is orchestrating the things of our lives for His glory and for our good. So this morning, I want us to be encouraged as we see in this text that the sovereign Lord's loving kindness towards Abraham is displayed in the provision of a wife for Isaac. The sovereign Lord's loving kindness displayed through His provision. In light of our story this morning, and the fact that God is working all around us, you and I are called to worship the Lord. And we do that by fervently engaging in the life that God has providentially prepared for us. All those are important. We are called to be active and engaging in the life that God has providentially prepared for us. 
I'm sure you've met those people. My wife and I often, you'll meet that person. Maybe you've never met them before. And you leave after just spending just a little bit of time with them. And you leave and you, ha- you look over, and Megan and I will do this sometimes, and go, you can tell that person loves Jesus. The joy that they're just exuding is so evident in their lives. And what is really cool to think about is that it's not because everything in their life has worked out perfectly. In fact, often we meet these people, some of them have, where it feels like they have everything. Some of it feels like where, man, they have almost nothing. Some whose life has turned out probably like they wanted it. Others whose lives feel like every time they've gotten somewhere, it's been hitting a brick wall. Some who are in great health, others whose bodies are frail. Some who came from really wonderful family backgrounds, others who came from difficult circumstances. So the circumstances don't matter. That's not what sets these people apart. What they have learned and what you and I need to learn is that when we trust that the circumstances that we are in are providentially watched over by a good and a loving God, it removes the stress. It removes much of the anxiety of feeling like we have to get it all correct, of wondering if the place that we're in is where we are supposed to be. And so this morning, instead of worry, we are to worship. And instead of anxiety, we are called to act. We are called to act by moving forward, trusting in God's providence. That is our first right response when we understand and we see God's sustaining power in our lives. We are to move forward, trusting in God's providence. Ashton just read these first nine verses for us this morning. In verse 1, it says that Abraham was getting old, or he's now old, getting on in years. Talk about piling on. The NIV translated, he was very old, right? That's like the nice summary way of just saying, we're at the end. In fact, this same phrase is used for Jacob and David. At the, it really is the marker that says, I've blessed you. And it says that in verse 2, we are now coming to the end. And Abraham knows that. He's been blessed and he understands that succession is imminent. And so he calls his most trusted servant, the head of his household and everything that he has. Could this be Eliezer of Damascus that we read about in Genesis 15? Maybe. But either way, it's this most trusted servant. He calls him and he says to make an oath, but he does so in a way that we don't really do that today, thankfully. He says, place your hand under my thigh. Kind of thankful we don't do that. Uh, And the New Testament, thankfully, actually doesn't call us to make a bunch of oaths. In fact, it says, instead, because the Holy Spirit living inside of you, let your yes simply be yes, and your no be no, and that is the oath that you are making every time you speak. But nonetheless, here in this time, This is an act of, it's a symbolic act, it's a personal act, it's a submissive act on the part of the servant, in which he is conveying to Abraham in the presence of God that even though if Abraham were to pass away, which is what's on the table here, that I'm going to fulfill this task that I'm making a promise to you before God right now. And we know this matters even past his life because this is going to happen again with Jacob. When he says to Joseph, when they're in Egypt, make this kind of promise to me. Put your hand on my thigh and promise me that when I die, you will not bury me here in Egypt, but that you will take me back. You will take me back to Canaan. And so the oath is given in front of the Lord. Now have you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my sons from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. I need a wife for my son, but not from these. Because these 
believe in local deities. These believe in local small gods, and we worship a God of the heavens and God of the earth. We worship a cosmic, all-powerful God. So go back to my homeland and find a wife fit for my son. Now the servant's response in verse 5, I don't think we're meant to read them as argumentative. When he says, suppose the woman's unwilling to follow me. Now, that seems pretty reasonable. He's a wise servant. He's been with Abraham a long time. They haven't seen their family in many, many years. Potentially decades. And servant's like, I hear you. I'm willing. But let's say I go, and I tell them all these cool things, and they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Seems like a reasonable question. Then he says, okay, look, we've all met the people, Right? We've met the people that are really, really good at finding out why something you said may not work. Maybe you've even been that people. And and to be honest, I'm actually thankful for those people at times because they are people who are thinking well. Like this servant has taken everything Abraham has said and gone, well, but here's why this might not work. But the people we don't really care for are the ones that point those out and then never offer a solution. This servant is trying to offer a good solution in his mind. Well, how about this? If, If they reject it, how about I take Isaac back I show them, hey, this is the one I'm talking about. And, well, that, does that make sense? And Abraham's response, to be honest, is pretty blunt. Make sure that you don't take my son back there. Now, at first reading, I was like, man, is, is Abraham getting ornery in his old age? I mean, like, the servant is trying to be helpful, and you kind of just shut him down. But, but really what I think is happening here is you got to realize this is the last words of Abraham recorded in the Bible. And so he's looking over the last 62 years of his life since God has called him. And he's made a few things very clear. That he has promises for him. And those promises aren't back there, but they are here. And so it is important that what takes place, that we're going to trust in the Lord to take and continue to do what he has been doing for the last 62 years. And not to go backwards. In fact, Abraham is so sure that this is what God is doing, that he makes a statement that, to be honest, is kind of strange. When he says in verse 7 that, I believe so much in this, that God is a part of this, that God is going to send his angel ahead of you to make sure this happens. In other words, what he's trying to convey, that based on God's will and based on what God is doing, this mission is going to be a success, not servant because of your wisdom, not because even of my wealth and my status but because God is providentially working in this situation and in this mission. I guess you can say in verse 8, maybe Abraham concedes a little bit. Hey, if this doesn't work out, I'll let you out of your oath. But to be honest, I really think that's, uh, I mean, if it makes you feel better, I'll let you out of this oath if, if it doesn't happen. But I'm quite confident that this is what's going to happen. And so the servant Places his hand under his thigh and he makes the promise. So the first response, right response to seeing God's working in our lives is to move forward trusting in God's providence. Now let me take a really quick aside just for a moment. We have been talking now, however many weeks we've been in Genesis, about the sovereignty of our God. That our God is an all-powerful creator God. That he is over everything. That there's no authority that is over him or equal to him. That he is more powerful and what he decides is what is going to happen. But I used our first response this morning to say, hey, it's God's providence. 
So is God's providence and God's sovereignty the same thing? Not exactly. God's sovereignty is an attribute of who he is. By the very fact he is God, he is over all things. By the very fact that he is God, nothing can happen outside of what he wills. In fact, Job 42, Job confesses, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So that's who God is. Providence, on the other hand, is how God sees to it that his sovereign will is done. It's what he does. Isaiah 46, 10, God says, I declare the end from the beginning, from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. If sovereignty is an attribute, it's his right, his power to do as he wishes, then his providence is the, him working everything out towards those ends for his purposes and everything in the world. Now, maybe you cared nothing about that little aside, and maybe you're wondering why in the world did I even bother telling us that this morning. Uh, I hope that's not the case, but let's say it might be. We have spent so many weeks trying to drive home the fact that there is an all-powerful, all-encompassing, sovereign God who is over everything, which includes your life. And we want you to know him. We want you to trust him. We are trying to see that you would love him and live for him. But the reality is sometimes we, and we can feel like we've messed up. We can feel like we've missed out. We can feel like God is this really all-powerful God out there, and he has these grand plans. But, but am I really a part of that, or am I just kind of this little piece over here? Abraham believed in verse 7 that God cared about every detail of the story. And we want you to see this morning, I want you to see this morning, that it's not just the God that is way out there, but it is the God who is actively working in and through the circumstances of your life to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And we are benefiting and our good from it. Guys, that's good news. That frees us up. We don't have to stress over every decision. See, God didn't have just a purpose for Abraham, and it was good as long as everything was as it should be, and as long as Abraham did everything that was right. Abraham messed up in some pretty bad ways. Twice he told other people that his wife was a sister. Not once, twice. And in both instances, God intervened because of his grand purposes, but ultimately was still for Sarah's and Abraham's good so even though the servant's questions in verse 5 seem legitimate, Abraham is confident after watching the Lord for 62 years work in his life that God will continue to providentially care for every aspect of this mission he sent his servant on as well. Our second response this morning, not only are we to move forward, not backwards, trusting in God's providence, we are to also pray expectantly and praise immediately. Pray expectantly and praise immediately. Now, after the servant has made the oath, he loads up 10 camels with lots of things on them that we'll see later in our story, and he heads off. Now, depending on where these ancient locations are, it's been hypothesized it took anywhere from nine days to two weeks one way on a journey with camels. And verse 11 says that he arrives, what may not see in your translation, at really the perfect time. Because this is when the young women, who that was mostly their job, 
the young unmarried women of the home, part of their responsibility would be to go out daily and get water for the family for the next day. And so after a two-week journey, this guy just happens to arrive at just the right time. Just happens to, or is God, again, over every single detail of this story? And the first thing that this servant does is he gets down and he prays before God. The term for pray in verse 12 is, is a simple word. It means said, but it's in the context of intercession. It's in the context of thanksgiving. The servant's prayer is like that of a lot of the patriarchs, whose prayers were personal. They were conversational. They were informal. But personal and informal do not mean casual. We can pray to the Lord in a personal way. We can pray to him without all of the flowy words, but it doesn't mean that we are casual. This servant addresses the God of Abraham. Not the God that he sees right in front of him, but the God of the universe. He humbly comes before him and he makes his petition. And he makes a petition in what he believes is in accordance to God's will that would honor the Lord, that would honor Abraham. And he asked for discernment of what God is doing. I love how specific his prayer is. I probably don't pray specific enough. Look at what he says. Let the girl, in verse 14, let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink. And who responds, drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know you've shown kindness to my master. In his being specific, he's not trying to manipulate God. He's not saying, God, I know you got this plan, but, but I want you to do it in this way. No, this is a humble prayer. This is a prayer that says, God, you are God and you have to act. And, and it's my job to see where you're acting. And, and, and I want to join in with that. But I'm a, a fallible human being. And I need it to be abundantly clear that this is what you are doing. So that it's not using my own wisdom to see if this is what the right thing to do. And so he is very specific. It's an expectant yet dependent prayer. It rightly honors God as the one who needs to act for his mission to be successful. And he admits he's not God, and he needs the clear direction. He asks for loving kindness. That word hesed, we've talked about multiple times, this beautiful, rich, uh, theological word in the, in the Old Testament that talks about God's covenant love that he's been displaying for Abraham now for multiple years. He's asking for that same love to be extended in this way. And then secondly, he prays for a servant-hearted maiden, right? He's looking for a specific woman. She must be servant-hearted. She must match the hospitality that we've seen from Abraham and his family over the course now of many chapters. And of course, she must be one who's never been married so that any child that comes from her would be Isaac's and not potentially someone else's. And I love verse 15. So he's doing all of this, he's praying, and then it says, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca. I imagine it watching this as part of a movie. The servant is praying this beautiful, strategic prayer for God to make it abundantly clear what God is doing. But remember, the well was outside of town. The woman would have had to leave her home and come to the well. So it's quite possible that Rebecca had already left her home before the, the servant even uttered a word. Because God was already working. And he was just having to figure out what it is that God was doing. 
And here's Rebecca introduced on the scene. And then it gives us some information that the servant doesn't have yet. She's of the right family. She's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. She's obviously a very beautiful maiden, never been married. And the servant who is sitting back away from the well is watching all of this. And he sees her and he runs up to her and asks for a drink. Now, why he picked her and not some other one, I don't know. Was she the only beautiful one out there? I don't know. But I do know that God was over every detail, so it's really not that hard to expect that God had his eyes directed exactly where God wanted him to see. And he runs up to her, he asks her for a drink. And in verse 18, she says, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels. What have you been praying for? A woman that would go beyond the expectation. But 19 doesn't say she just gave the camels some drink. It says that she gave until they had had enough to drink. Another translation says until they had finished drinking. Now, we don't travel by camel in the greater Raleigh area. I don't think any of you do. Maybe some of you ride horses. Uh, I don't think that's quite the same. So we may not fully grasp how incredible this is. Now, there's a range, of course, but I picked something in the middle. But let's say each camel drinks about 30 gallons of water at a time after this long trip, totally possible. And there's 10 of them. Simple math this morning, guys. 300 gallons. If her water jug is five gallons, that's 60 trips she's making to go to the well, to draw up water, to take it back to the trough, to pour it out and do it over and over again. Her service, her hospitality is incredible. And so as she's watering these animals, the servant, it says in verse 21, is sitting back and just watching. He's seeking to discern, is, Lord, is this you? I prayed expectantly for, for these specific things, and it feels like this is what you're doing. Give me clarity on this. Is this what you're really doing? And, and remember, he doesn't have what we know. He doesn't know she's of the right family. And so when we pray expectantly, it is right for us to immediately start watching to see what the Lord is doing. And after a period of time, he grabs some, some uh, jewelry that he's hoping to be able to give to her if she answers the correct way that he is expecting. And so he asks, whose daughter are you? And if there, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And in verse 22, she gives an answer that he's been waiting for. I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She's of the right family. She has done everything he's asked for. This is the woman in his mind that God has called out for this purpose. And so it seems like such a small thing that, of course, there's room in their home for him because God's been over the big things. How small is a thing to offer them room and board for the night? And so, of course... Once she answers that, the servant, the only acceptable response this servant could do is to fall down and worship and praise the Lord. Verse 26, the man knelt low, worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Check this out though. He prays expectantly. He seeks to discern, and the moment he sees God working, he falls down and prays. By the way, there's still some pieces to this story that haven't been worked out yet. 
He doesn't wait for all of those to be finished. The moment he sees God working, he praises. And by the way, he's going to do it again. This is a pattern of prayer, expectant prayer, immediate praise. In his humble but confident assertion, we see that the Lord has blessed Abraham with his loving kindness, with his covenant love. And he's blessed this servant in his mission. So the second right response that we are to have when we see God's sustaining power working in our lives is to pray expectantly and to praise immediately. Thirdly, we are to then speak confidently on what the Lord has done. Verse 28, the girl runs back to her mother's home. She tells them what all is going on, and we're introduced now to another character, Laban, her brother, a guy that we'll see again in Genesis uh, when Jacob wants to marry one of his daughters. Laban is kind of an interesting character, and I don't miss because I think this is important. In 30, it says, as soon as he, that's Laban, had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard his sister Rebecca's words, so what, did, what happened first? Did he hear from his sister first or did he see first? Yeah, he saw. He, he has a thing for money. And so he saw her wealth or what had been put on her wrist and in her nose. And then he heard her words and he runs out to meet him. He runs out to meet this guy to figure out who he is. He says, you're obviously blessed of the Lord. Please come stay in my home. Now in all of that, the hospitality is continued to be extended. Not only do they offer them room, they offer a place for all of the camels. They unload the camels. They feed them. They wash the feet of this servant and all who are with them. And they make this grand meal for them. Because that's what you would have done when you had guests. And you, you can just imagine it, right? All of this is taking place, but yet there's all of a sudden, in verse 33, a story that's been clipping along, there's a pause. Because it's all, I imagine, like, you know, they're doing all this work. There's multiple people that are cooking. There's multiple people that are getting stuff ready. They're washing up the nicest dishes. And they come and they start setting all of it out. And everybody's gathering around the table. And right when everybody should start eating, he says, well, hold on, just, just a minute. And he stops and he declines to eat until he has shared why he is there. See, the servant, consistent with his earlier sense of duty, Resist gratifying his own needs until he settles the matter for the one who sent him. Until he fulfills the oath that he made to Abraham. So of course now her family is anxious to hear. And so Laban says, please speak. And so in verse 34 and following, the servant recounts flattering but factual introduction to Abraham or reintroduction to Abraham. You got to think, if it's been gone for a long time, there's people at this table who have never met Abraham. They only know him by word. They've definitely never met Isaac. And so the servant introduces them. He tells of Sarah having a child in her old age. And then he recounts the events of everything that we've already looked at this morning. And as modern readers of the Bible, we may be tempted to skip this next section and go, guys, let me just give you the rundown. It's what we've already talked about. But I think that entirely misses the point. The point is the story of what God has done is so incredible that it has to be told again. That God has to be given credit, not just to the servant, but to everybody that was listening. The servant was bound to make sure that everyone knew that God was the one doing all of the work. This wasn't a chance meeting that I showed up here at the well and picked your daughter. This wasn't my own cleverness. 
If there's going to be a marriage, which is why he came, it has to be clear that this is marriage made in heaven. So here's what I'm going to do. And you're going to hopefully bear with me. I'm going to read these verses. I'm not going to give commentary. I want you, like them, to hear, because we've been working through it. I want you to hear the story. Follow along in your Bibles. Just sit and listen, whatever. Listen to all the ways in which it was God that was doing the work, starting in verse 34. I am Abraham's servant, he said. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become rich. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he's given him everything he owns. My master put me under this oath. You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but will go to my father's family and to my clan to take a wife for my son. But I said to my master, suppose the woman will not come back with me. He said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success. And he will take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's family. Then you will be free from my oath. If you go to my family, they do not give her to you. You'll be free from my oath. So today, when I came to the spring, I prayed, Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if only you will make my journey successful. I'm standing here at the spring. Let the young woman who comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jug. And who responds to me, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the woman that the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished praying silently, there was Rebecca coming with her jug on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. So I said to her, please let me have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll water your camels also. So I drank, and she also watered the camels. And then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she responded, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And then I knelt down low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way to take the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. He had to make sure that everybody at that table knew it was God and God alone who did this. So he spoke confidently on what the Lord had done. Our fourth right response to God's sustaining power in our lives is to then act boldly to accomplish God's will. Right? He tells this nice story. He recounts this, what has happened, but he isn't finished. Giving a testimony of what God has done in your life is wonderful and it's powerful, but often what should follow is a call to action, which is what he does. He's not there to share a story, but to fulfill an oath. He's there to secure a bride for Isaac. And it is apparent to him, and hopefully is apparent to them, based on this story, that Rebecca is the one that God has called out for this. So the servant puts the ball in their court, so to say. If you're going to show me the same purpose in verse 49, if you're going to show me the same steadfast love to my master as the Lord has already done multiple times, then agree with the Lord and send Rebecca as a bride for Isaac. That's what he's saying. And if not, let me know. So I can know what to do next. That's really, some of your versions say, turn to the left or turn to the right. It really means, let me know what I need to do next so I can make the decision. The story's great, but there's a purpose to the story. And after hearing the story, those who are sitting there, specifically called out Laban and Bethuel, answered in verse 50, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. 
Take her and go. Let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. This, this is the response he was looking for. After everything the Lord's doing, after a two-week journey, after all of that he's been praying along the way, Abraham's been praying, this is what they've been waiting on. They recognize it was God who was working, and they say, yes, take her. What can we say? It's the Lord that's doing it. And of course, we shouldn't be shocked now. The servant's natural response, his first natural response is to bow down and praise the Lord because he recognized that the Lord was doing what he said he would do. And then he lavishes on them. Out of the abundance that the Lord has blessed Abraham, he lavishly blesses Rebekah and her mother and her brother. And after a celebratory dinner, I imagine it probably went pretty late into the night, they go to bed and wake up the next morning and the servant says, okay, now send me away to my master so I can complete my mission. And for the first time in our story, we see this potential wrinkle. So all of a sudden, Laban and her mother say, well, Hold up. We're not saying no. We're just saying wait. Ten days to be exact. Which, on the surface of it, is, is not terrible. You know, they were getting ready for dinner the night before, and they have this daughter, and they're, you know, whatever. And now all of a sudden it's like, hey, she's betrothed, she's leaving. All that happens in not that long. They had, had no time to mentally or emotionally prepare for this. In other places of the Bible, when this request is made, it's honored. And so it's not unreasonable. But the servant responds, do not delay me since the Lord has made my journey a success. In other words, what God is doing, the divine work that God is doing, trumps our own personal desires here. And so they're kind of at this impasse. And so they call in the late, uh, Rebecca. They said, let's ask her. In verse 58, will you go with this man? And Rebecca is given the final and authoritative say. And her answer is concise and clear. I will go. Or possibly translated, I want to go. Rebecca seemed to understand the urgency of the moment. I mean, who knows? Maybe the night before as they were preparing the meal, she's standing around and she's hearing all that this servant is talking about. And as he's recounting all that the Lord had done and orchestrating every detail, and maybe what became clear to her is that the Lord has a plan, not just for Abraham or Isaac, but even for herself, for her life. And she was excited to live out that plan of purpose. So they agree and send her away. And in verses 50, uh, 59 and 60, they bless her. And the blessing they speak over her is very similar to what God speaks over Abraham in chapter 22. And maybe, who knows, over the course of the night, maybe he's sharing all of the story of God calling him out and in the birth of Isaac. And either way, they bless her by saying, uh, Oh, sister, may you become thousands upon ten thousands. God said to Abraham, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And then they say, may your offspring possess the city gates of their enemies, the exact phrasing that God blesses Abraham with. And so by this blessing, they now acknowledge that Rebekah is the chosen instrument by God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Not only did the servant speak boldly of what God has done, but now he's acted boldly by calling them to action and continuing to keep God's purposes in front of them and so now she is to be sent away. And then our last section, 
and the last response of how we ought to respond when we see God sustaining our lives is very simple. We are to enjoy the life that God has provided. Now you can picture this with me. If you Any TV show that you've watched for a really long period of time, and you have these two main characters that are headed towards marriage, right? And they draw this out usually for a long time, right? Maybe a whole season of them getting ready for that, that wedding episode. In fact, if it's Saved by the Bell, I'm dating myself, they made a whole movie of them getting married. But I grew up really with Boy Meets World, and you had Cory and Topanga, and they're headed towards marriage, and, and they make this whole big deal about it. And inevitably, and every time you have one of these wedding episodes, there's this period where they, they, they do this slow cut to black, and then they cut back up again to some other place, and I'm picturing like birds chirping in the background or something. You know, they've over-dramatized this effect. Well, Either way, I picture that's what's happening here between verses 61 and 62. They've left, they've left uh, back where Abraham was from, and, then it, and they're leaving, and then it kind of cuts to black, and it slowly comes back up, and now you have Isaac in this field. And again, I definitely think there were birds chirping in the background. He's in this field reminiscent of when Ruth met Boaz in Boaz's field. And so for the first time, we meet Isaac in the story. And we meet him as he's walking in the field, but the wording there really means he was meditating. Walking along, meditating, he had to have known that what the servant was sent to do. And maybe he's praying that this would be done. And sure enough, as he's praying, he looks up and there comes the camels. There comes the entourage. There comes Rebecca. Just as when the servant had been praying at the well, there comes Rebecca. Same thing here for Isaac. And, and then it cuts over. Now we're looking at Rebecca and then, you know, you, you go and she's riding along and then she looks up and she sees Isaac coming at him. And she gets down off her camel. She asks the servant who this is. And the servant's like, this is the one we've been talking about for the last two weeks on our journey. She covers herself with her veil, as a young maiden betrothed woman would do. And the servant goes and he tells Isaac all that has taken place. So Isaac takes her. He marries her. And it may seem weird to us. It says it's into the, mother, or the tent of his mother. But again, that was a, a word picture, an intentional. She is now going to become the matriarch of God's people. And it says he loves her. And so as the scene starts to fade at the end of the episode, we are left with the feeling that everything is as it ought to be. And it was. Because God had seen to it that every single element went according to his plan. But as if this story wasn't well, uh, good enough on its own, it wasn't wonderful enough just in our reading and studying of it, the story of Isaac and Rebekah, as I told you in the beginning, doesn't stop there. Its ultimate conclusion is Christ and his church. A marriage that will take place at the end of time when, when God comes together, all of the bride of Christ, us who are in Christ, to be wed, to be, un, to be in union with Christ our Savior. In the same way that Abraham, Isaac's father, had planned for a bride to be brought to, uh, to Isaac, his son, in the same way God planned and called you and I, to be in union with his son. In the same way Rebecca was sought out, chosen, called, and lavished with gifts, called into a relationship with, with Isaac, so too we have been sought out, called, and joined with Christ. And just as Isaac loved Rebecca, even more so that Christ loved his church, to the point where he even died to make her clean and pure before God. This is where we fit into the story. 
It's not just a beautiful love story in the Old Testament, but it's a story that God has put you and I as a part of. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you too can be part of this story. You can be brought into a new and a better relationship with, a, with, with one who will love you forever and ever without end. Because Jesus doesn't only love us superficially, he displayed that in his sacrifice on the cross. And when we are joined with Christ, we have him forever. So if you're not a Christian this morning, the beauty of this story is that today could be the day in which you, like Rebecca, are joined to the one who deeply loves you more than you even know. But if you are a Christian here this morning, then you've already experienced that union with Christ. You are the one who was found, called, and joined to Christ. But you aren't simply Rebecca in this story. The Bible says that if you're a, in Christ, you are a minister of the gospel. So I agree with Spurgeon when he said, the true minister of Christ is like this servant in Genesis 24. He is sent to find a wife for his master's son. His great desire is that many shall be presented unto Christ in the day of his appearing as the bride, the lamb's wife. So you are like Rebecca, but you are also like this servant. Trusting in God's providence to fulfill his purposes, to make, that you will make much of him in your own life, but also in the presence of others, whereby we seek to find more and more people that will become into a good and right relationship with Christ. We said in the very beginning, right, the main takeaway for us today is that we are to worship the Lord by fervently engaging in the life that he has providentially prepared for you. How do you do that? You do that by knowing who God is and knowing where he's headed and joining him with that. Abraham, we don't have any record of God telling Abraham, I need you to send your servant to here and this is how it's going to happen. But what Abraham knew is God's promises extended to him and his descendants. He knew that the women of Canaanites were not honoring the Lord. And so looking at the trajectories of what God has done, he says, this is what needs to take place because this is what God is doing. And I'm seeing what he's doing and I'm going after that. For believers, for us, you and me, it's the same way. This is how faith works. The anticipatory role of faith expressed in, in personal prayer and in our obedience, it looks for the evidences of God's working. And for most of our lives, we have to make really wise decisions. And we, have, and we do so by remaining faithful to the new covenant, to faithful to Christ, faithful to making disciples, trusting that through the circumstances of your life, that God will guide you to the place that he has for you. Now look, when we talk about knowing the will of God, I don't mean to act like it's always that easy. I don't mean to act like that we don't have questions, good, hard questions, relating to marriage and children and job changes and major purchases and schooling and where you're going to live and on and on. I don't mean to make it seem like those are unimportant or easy. But I do wonder sometimes, I do wonder if we overthink but underpray. We overanalyze and we understudy God's word. Abraham knew God's promises. He prayed, that servant prayed, and they walked in faith in that. We need to become meditative students of God's word, personally, corporately, and then we we're called to move forward, pray expectantly, praise immediately, speak confidently, act boldly, 
and then enjoy God in the life that he has made for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are not only the sovereign God who is over all things, but God, you are actively working in this world that you've made. And God, because we are your children who are in Christ, you have promised that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to somehow be so far gone that that you don't care for us or love us anymore or somehow don't have a plan for our lives anymore. It's just not true. And God, even when we have misstepped like Abraham did multiple times, God, we still saw your hand working to accomplish your purposes. And so, God, this morning, I pray as a people that we will, we will study your word. And not just for information, but to know who you are and what you're doing and what your purposes are, that we may join into that. And God, I pray as a people that we will be a prayerful people. Who pray specifically, not for our own benefits, but so that we may know and see what it is that you are doing, that we may join into that. And that, God, we may speak boldly and act boldly so that many others, like this servant who was tasked to bring a wife to Isaac, God, that we likewise can speak of what you have done and call people to action so that many, many more people will be there at the marriage between the church and Christ. God, we thank you for the purposes you've given our lives. We thank you that you're providentially acting in in every facet of our lives. God, may we then in return worship you actively, fervently, enjoying you and the life you've given us. God, we praise you in the name of Jesus in all of this. Amen.